Well, we live in a day and age where everybody is following something. You might uh, follow your favorite sports team by going to their games or by watching them on TV or by wearing their jersey. You might follow your favorite TV show by uh, watching it live or recording it or by borrowing your parents' Netflix account. You might follow your favorite band uh, by streaming their albums or by going to their concerts or by buying their t-shirts. And if you're a little old-fashioned, maybe you buy their CDs. I, I say that I bought a CD a couple months ago. So um, if you're on social media, you can follow your friends with the click of a button. You can even unfollow them if they post too much about politics or if they post too many pictures of their dogs. But if we're, if we're honest, following most of these things comes at relatively low cost. It might cost you a little time or a little money, but it won't cost you your life. So what then, what, what does it look like to follow Jesus? Can you just click a button on social media and follow him? Can you just go to Lifeway and buy a jersey that says that you're on Team Jesus? Or does following Jesus come at a great cost? Maybe following Jesus will cost you everything. Nabil Qureshi uh, was a popular Christian apologist. You've maybe read his book, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Well, Nabil grew up in a devout Muslim home and would later go to college at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. It was there that Nabil met a friend named David. And David was a Christian, and he'd frequently talk uh, with Nabil about Jesus in the Bible. And for several years, Nabil and David uh, debated the tenets of Christianity and Islam. And over time, Nabil actually became convinced that the Bible was trustworthy and that the Quran uh, was not as trustworthy as he had grown up believing. And so when explaining his conversion to Christianity in an article that uh, was put out by Christianity Today, he says this, I began mourning the impact of the decision I knew I had to make. On the first day of my second year of medical school, it became too much to bear. Yearning for comfort, I decided to skip school. Returning to my apartment, I placed the Quran and the Bible in front of me. I turned the Quran, but there was no comfort there. For the first time, the book seemed utterly irrelevant to my suffering irrelevant to my life. It felt like a dead book. With nowhere left to go, I opened the New Testament and started reading. Very quickly, I came to the passage that said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Electric, the words leapt off the page and jump-started my heart. I could not put the Bible down. I began reading fervently, reaching Matthew 10, 37, which taught me that I must love God more than my mother and father. But Jesus, I said, accepting you would be like dying. I will have to give up everything. 
And the next verses spoke to me, saying, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus was being very blunt. For Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. So I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. If you know Nabil's story, you know that his relationship with his family and those he loved was severely strained or severed. And so he, he truly did have to give up his life. And so friends, as we'll see in our text this morning, following Jesus costs everything. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take one of those black pew Bibles that's in front of you. Uh, you can actually take that home if you don't have a Bible. And so if you're, if you're flipping through trying to find Luke and you've landed in Matthew, uh, keep flipping to the right. If you've landed in John, then you've gone too far. So start flipping to the left. All right, so follow along with me starting in verse 27 of chapter 5. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May God use it to accomplish all of his purposes. And so if you take notes, I want you to write this down. This is going to be my, my sermon in a sentence. Kids, you can write this down on your, uh, your kid's sheet if you have one. Uh, so this is, this is it. It's uh, Jesus calls sinners to follow him and heals them. And so again, it's Jesus calls sinners to follow him and heals them. And so my first point will be following that sermon in a sentence is going to be found in Verses 27 through 28, and there we'll see that those who are called follow. And then we'll see, this will be my second point, we'll see in verses 29 through 32 that those who are called are healed. So again, we're going to first see that those who are called follow, and then we'll see that those who are called are healed. So again, in verse 27 through 28, we'll see that those who are called follow. So look with me at verse 27. Luke starts verse 27 by saying, after this. Anytime we come to a passage in the Bible, uh, especially in the middle of a book, we should ask, what has happened prior to this passage? So in verses 17 through 26, uh, we can see that Jesus healed a man that couldn't, he couldn't walk. And while we don't have time to look at every detail of this passage, 
uh, there are two things that I think are helpful for us to know as we get into our passage for today. So first we see that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. You might remember that God is the only one who has the authority to forgive sins. We see that in Psalm 51 that, that David says that his sins are against God and God alone. And so when Jesus tells the man that his sins are forgiven, he's implicitly affirming that he is God. And so secondly, we see uh, the beginning of Jesus' controversy with the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees are offended by this claim that Jesus has made, that he, can, that he has the authority to forgive sins. And they're off- also offended because he's, like we've said before, that he's implicitly saying that he is God. And so this controversy is going to continue into the text that we're studying this morning. So look again with me at verse 27. It says that he, which is referring to Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. If you're new to studying the Bible, uh, you might be asking, what is a tax collector? Well, in the Roman world, uh, a tax collector was someone who would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman government. But they, they wouldn't just collect what was owed to the government. They would also collect money for themselves. You might think of them kind of like a corrupt politician who instead of using uh, the power that they've been given for the greater good, they, they use it for their own financial or social gain. You might have also noticed that the tax collector's name is Levi. If you didn't know, Levi is a Jewish name. And so why is this significant? Well, Levi wouldn't have just been hated because he abused his power as a tax collector. He would have also been hated because he was seen to be a traitor by the Jewish people. He would have been seen as unclean because of his association with the Roman government. So if you were a Jew in the first century, this verse would be puzzling to you. You might have asked, why is Jesus, who's claiming to be the Son of God and who's claiming to have the authority to forgive sins, why is he talking to such a person like Levi? And even more so, why is he calling Levi to follow him at the end of verse 27? Well, friends, God delights in calling the most unworthy of candidates to follow him. He calls sinners to follow him. And so if you didn't know, Levi is actually uh, referred to as Matthew after this interaction with Jesus, uh, which is a really good name. It means a gift from God, no big deal. Uh, so if you're thinking about baby names, you should probably pick Matthew. Um, well, Matthew goes on to be one of Jesus' disciples, and he would later even go on to write uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which is about two books to the left in your Bible. And so speaking of unlikely candidates in the Bible, you might also think of the Apostle Paul. Saul, who was later renamed Paul, persecuted Christians. Yet God used him to plant many churches, and to write much of the New Testament scriptures. And this isn't just something we see in the New Testament. This is also in the Old Testament. Think all the way back to Genesis 12. You might think of of Abraham. Abram, who was later renamed Abraham, was an idol worshiper. He probably worshipped the moon. Yet, God called him to follow him. And he promised this former idolater that he would bless 
all the nations through him. And while there are many others that we could probably list, it's no new concept that God delights in calling the most unworthy of candidates to follow him. God can make jewels out of the worst sinners. And God calls sinners, yet he gives them a new heart and a new mind and a new will and a new name. So friend, do you believe that your sin is too deep for God to call a sinner like you? Do you believe that the effects of your sin are too wide for him to ask you to follow him? Friend, God's love, grace, and mercy are from everlasting to everlasting. He has no beginning and no end. He is infinite, and he is not lacking in power. So friends, he can truly make a jewel out of the worst sinner in Christ. Well, we've seen that Jesus calls even the worst of sinners to follow him. But what does it look like to follow Jesus? Well, look with me at verse 28. In this verse, we see Levi's response to Jesus' call. He state, it, the text states that in leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So for Levi, following Jesus meant leaving a well-paying job. There was no going back. This isn't a situation where he could put in his two weeks and then change his mind at the last minute if he wanted to keep it. When a tax collector quit, they were not allowed to collect taxes again. So why would Levi make such a seemingly rash decision? Well, the text doesn't really tell us anything about Levi's life prior to conversion. We know that he was a tax collector, but the text doesn't mention if he didn't like his job. The text doesn't mention if he felt guilty about ripping off his own people. It doesn't even mention if he wanted to be a better person. What we can rightly assume, though, is that Levi's response is the supernatural work of God. All of us who are believers were once dead in our sin. And Scripture affirms this in Ephesians chapter 2, which states that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, and that we were by nature children of wrath. Before Christ, we didn't desire the things of God, yet thankfully, God makes dead sinners alive in Christ. So friends, Levi rose and left that tax booth because he was made alive by the grace of God. He was empowered to leave everything behind because of God's grace to him in Christ. So what does it then look like for us to leave everything and follow Jesus? Well, for us to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus, I think it would be helpful if we zoomed out a bit and took a survey of what the rest of the Gospel of Luke has to say about following Jesus. So let me give you three things. I'm going to reference several passages. Uh, don't feel like you have to flip there with me, but you might want to write them down so that for uh, further reflection. So first, we see that those who follow Jesus recognize their neediness. We see in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter, James, and John, to follow him. And you might remember that Jesus comes to them while they're fishing. 
And Jesus miraculously causes them to catch a large number of fish. And the text says that that Peter, James, and John, similar to the passage we're in today, that they left everything and followed him. But it's interesting how Peter responds before they say this. In the text it says that Peter, after seeing Jesus' miracle, says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We see in Peter's response that those who follow Jesus recognize that they're sinners. We should see the righteousness of Christ and recognize our lack of righteousness. As Jesus' followers, we, we shouldn't be people that think we're really great. We, shouldn't, we should recognize that we're all in need of divine grace. And there is nothing in us that can make us right with God. It's only in Christ that we can be declared righteous before him. Second, those who follow Jesus deny themselves and take up their cross daily. We see this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You might remember in, when I was reading that excerpt that, uh, that Nabil Qureshi actually looked at this passage. Um, but it says that, that Jesus tells his disciples that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So what does Jesus mean when he says that we should deny ourselves and take up our cross? Well, he's saying that those who follow him need to lose their lives. If you follow Jesus, you're no longer in control of your life. Jesus is now your Lord. He's your king. And friends, this is good news. If we're honest with ourselves, we're not very good at being lords over our own lives. We're not very good at being kings and queens over our own kingdoms. Because some, some of us are quick to anger. But King Jesus is slow to anger. Some of us are unsympathetic to the, the needs of others, but King Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. And some of us are impatient with others. But King Jesus is abundantly patient. So friends, it's a good thing to live under the reign of King Jesus. Obedience to him and his word is not a burden. For those who follow him, there is joy in obedience. And so third, we see that those who follow Jesus have their treasure in heaven. We see this in Luke 18, verse 22. You might remember that when Jesus tells the rich young ruler to follow him, that he must sell all that he has and distribute it to the poor. If doing so, his reward would have been treasure in heaven. But what is this treasure in heaven? Well, this treasure is eternal life. But the hope in this treasure isn't just getting to live forever. The hope in this treasure is that we get to know and enjoy God forever. He'll be our treasure throughout all of eternity. And while it's not wrong to have money or wealth, we, we must remember that these things cannot make us right with God. We don't look to worldly wealth or healthy bodies for our salvation. We look to our treasure in heaven who we'll know and enjoy for all of eternity. 
This is why I love uh, the song we sung this morning, Christ is Mine Forevermore. Uh, one of my, my favorite verses in it says this. It says, And mine are keys to Zion's city, where beside the king I walk. For there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. So brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, then your heart's treasure is found in your king in heaven. So don't trade this desire for some lesser desire of this world. All the desires of this world pale in comparison to our treasure in heaven, Jesus Christ. So why can someone like Levi leave everything and follow Jesus? He can leave everything because his treasure is in heaven. Well, we've seen that those who follow Jesus recognize their neediness, deny themselves, and have their treasure in heaven. So brothers and sisters, I don't bring up these texts to burden you. I know that there are probably some of us in here today who hear these texts and we feel like we can never amount to following Jesus. Well, let me tell you this. That's the perfect place to start. Following Jesus starts with recognizing our need for him. And so remember, if you've trusted in Christ, then you have been adopted by the Father. If you've trusted in Christ, then all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places are yours in Christ Jesus. And if you have trusted in Christ, then you have received Christ's helper, the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, we have all the grace we need to persevere as we follow Jesus. What more could God give us if he's given us himself? So, friends, there is no more for heaven now to give. It's also important to remember that that King Jesus ministers to us through his people. So, believer, if you're feeling the weight of your sin, don't flee from community. Press into it. Let your brothers and sisters encourage you with God's word. Let your brothers and sisters remind you of the good news of Jesus Christ. Because there might be coming a day where some of us lose our jobs for following Jesus. Some of us might be disowned from our families for following Jesus. Some of us might be mocked. And some of us could maybe even lose our lives. I don't say that lightly. So brothers and sisters, we need to remind each other that Christ is enough in these moments. Brothers and sisters, leaving everything to follow Jesus doesn't mean that you're alone. It means that you've been brought into fellowship with the God of the universe and his people. So let's help one another follow Jesus. Well, we saw in Verses 27 through 28, that those who are called follow. We'll now see in verses 29 through 32 that those who are called are healed. So look with me at verse 29. We see that Levi threw uh, Jesus a great feast at his house. So if you're throwing a party, you know, you have to invite people. So who's Levi going to invite? Well, he invites his friends from work. And we see that there is a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with Jesus and his disciples. 
Let's pause for a second. Isn't this scene amazing? Think about this. Jesus is sharing a meal with tax collectors. They're hated by the Jewish community, yet Jesus is sitting with them and sharing a meal. And this isn't just some random dude that they're sitting with and having a party with. This is God the Son in human flesh sitting amongst the lowest of low. That's incredible. But you know who didn't see that as being incredible? The Pharisees. Instead of following Jesus' example and ministering to the tax collectors, it says that they grumbled. Some of your translations, if you have the CSB, might say complained. And so they said to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They were baffled that Jesus and his disciples would hang out with such people. You see, for the Pharisees, they saw the tax collectors as being ritually unclean. Since these tax collectors were associated with the Roman government, they were seen as traitors by the Jewish people. And so they weren't welcome to have fellowship with the rest of the Jewish community. And so they also would have seen Jesus and his disciples as being unclean because of their association with the tax collectors. And so when we read this text, we, we tend to think that the Pharisees come into Levi's house to grumble at the disciples. In reality, they were probably actually standing outside of the house because they didn't want to become unclean. And so from our point of view, it probably seems ridiculous that the Pharisees would do this. We might be thinking, they seem so self-righteous. But before we think too highly of ourselves, flip with me to Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Keep your finger in Luke 5, though. We're going to be heading back there. Uh, but Luke 18 uh, should be a couple pages to your right in your Bible. And so we see here, uh, we see Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So read with me starting in verse 9. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who humbles himself will be humbled. Or wait, sorry. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So while we can't get into all of the details of this text today, that's for another day, uh, there are two things that I want you to see about those who are self-righteous. First, those who are self-righteous trust in themselves. Notice how Luke describes Jesus' audience in verse 9. He describes them as 
those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus' intended audience here is probably the Pharisees. And Jesus is uh, accusing them of trusting in their own righteousness. And so this is what's at the heart of self-righteousness. It's to be confident in one's own righteousness. It's to think that we can stand before God based off our own works. And so instead of trusting in Christ's finished work, those who are self-righteous trust in their own works. And so second, we see that those who are self-righteous exalt themselves over others. They say like the Pharisees in the parable, at least I'm not like that guy. And so if we're honest, we probably do the same thing, whether we, whether we think it or whether we say it out loud. We might say, look God, at least my kids don't act like their kids. We might say, at least I'm not as bad as my roommates or my siblings. We might say, at least I don't talk like my coworkers do. You might even say, as you're reading this text, at least I'm not as self-righteous as the Pharisees. So friends, we deceive ourselves when we compare our good deeds to the bad deeds of others. If you're new to church, you might be wondering why we we keep using this word sin. Well, sin means to do something that is against God's law. It's not to follow his rules. But sin isn't just the bad things that we do externally. It's also, the good thing, it's also the good things we do with bad motives internally. So you see, all sin actually starts in our hearts. And so instead of desiring to do things for God's glory and the good of others, our sinful hearts desire to do things for ourselves and for our own glory. And we see this in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, which says this about the heart. It says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friends, our hearts are sick with sin whether we want to admit it or not. And so this brings us to a third point about self-righteousness. Those who are self-righteous don't believe that they're sick. So flip with me back to Luke 5. Notice how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question in verse 30. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus cuts right to the heart of the Pharisees. Their main problem is that they think that they're well. When Jesus says that the well don't need a physician, they think, oh, he's talking about me. But when our hearts are consumed by self-righteousness, we're tempted to do the same. And friends, the scriptures tell us that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We're all sick. And we deceive ourselves if we ignore this truth. 
And look, I, I know that's bad news. But the text also has good news for us. Those who are sick need a physician. And guess what? We have a great physician in Jesus Christ. We need open heart surgery. We need Jesus to take out our dead hearts and to give us new hearts. And only Jesus has the steady hands to make dead sinners alive. But he doesn't just stop there, though. He really rehabilitates us, even, by removing the power of sin over our lives. That over time, we desire our sin less and less. And we desire to lovingly obey him more and more. And Jono brought this early, up earlier in his prayer, but, it, but there's coming a day when he'll heal our bodies once and for all. And on the last day, we'll raise in bodies that are like his risen body, that are incorruptible. And we'll spend eternity knowing and enjoying him with the Father and the Spirit forever and ever. So friends, how is he able to do this? How is he able to make sinners righteous? Well, Jesus is able to heal us because he took the penalty of our sins. The penalty for every self-righteous thought, every time you went, I'm better than that guy, every wicked word that came out of your mouth, that maybe you had that self-righteousness boiled up to where you lashed out at others, maybe you avoided them, and every sin that you will ever commit was laid on Jesus. And so, beloved, it's by his wounds that we're healed. And it's in our Lord Jesus Christ that we've found righteousness before God. So if you're a believer, hold on to this truth. When you're tempted to have a self-righteous thought, look to the cross. It's there that we see that we can only be healed in Christ. And so maybe you've exalted yourself in your heart this week and it has come out in shortness towards others, maybe avoiding others, or maybe even cruel comments towards others. And so if you see the effects of self-righteousness in your life, I think it would it would be helpful to confess it to another believer. This could even be someone in your summer Bible study that you could confess, um, you could confess to them. And just say, hey, this is something I need help in. Can, can you pray for me? And then for kids, uh, you can also confess these things to your parents. Maybe you've felt uh, self-righteous to one of your siblings, and maybe you need to apologize to your sibling. Maybe you need to let your parents know that, that that's something that's happened. And there might even be someone in this room that, that you've offended with your self-righteousness. And so you might even consider as, as we come to the Lord's table, w would you... Uh, confess to that person and ask for forgiveness on your way to, to receive the meal. 
And so, brothers and sisters, remember that when you're tempted to think of yourself more highly than others, that Jesus died for that sin. And we can boast in his righteousness alone. So boast in Christ. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just say that we're glad that you're here. And we want you uh, to know that you too can be healed if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your righteousness. Listen to me, you can't make yourself well. Dead people can't do open heart surgery on themselves. You need the great physician, Jesus Christ, to heal you. But friend, if, if you don't come to him, you will never be healed. You will never be made righteous in him. And so this is why we sung these lyrics this morning. It says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. So friend, don't try to muster it up in your own strength to do this. You can't. You can only do this by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So friend, quit, quit trying to white-knuckle your way into the kingdom of God. Trust in Christ's finished work today. So to conclude, brothers and sisters, it costs everything to follow Jesus. We have to die to trusting in our own righteousness and trust in Christ's righteousness. But this dying isn't a grueling burden. In Christ, we have every grace we need to persevere. God has given us each other so that we can pilgrim together to our home in the new Jerusalem. And there we'll be with our healer forever. So until that day comes, we follow our king by faith and not by sight. But someday we'll see him. And so brothers and sisters, let's look by faith towards our treasure in heaven. 